Hey guys, and welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. You know, the 2020 Global Cannabis Report from New Frontier Data estimates that the Latin American sales will be in cannabis will reach about $44.8 billion by 2025. The preferable climate and the low production costs make Latin America a promising, a promising region for the future of cannabis production and investment. Yet in many South American countries, cannabis is still an illegal crop grown by farmers to support their families. Today's guest is a writer, photographer, and producer currently working for Vice in Mexico City. His journalistic subject matter ranges from Mexican cartels and drug smuggling to social economic equity to street art to basketball and environmental conservatism. His most recent publication for Vice News explores the world's worst weed and why we must save it. Please welcome to the show, Nathaniel Jan. Janowitz, thank you much, so much, sir, for being here for part of the show today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You know, the world's worst weed, my friend. I saw that as a headline and I knew we had to talk. Let's back <laughs> up for a second. Let's talk about when did you get your start in journalism? Where, where, where are you from? Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? Uh, I grew up in Nova Scotia, Canada, um, and I got involved in journalism about a decade ago. And Quickly after starting, I moved to uh, Mexico City and just never left, basically. Uh, jumped in uh, with both feet into the, the Latin American world, and especially with topics around marijuana legalization, things like that, is, is very close to my heart because I, uh, I actually did my master's degree in Colorado um, around the time when legalization was happening there. And I watched the whole process kind of play out from the medical marijuana cards to the day that um, it was actually voted to be legalized there statewide. And to me, it was just a really interesting experience watching that and then seeing it play out in other countries, um, whether that be Canada, where I grew up, or Uruguay, where I've also reported from. And yeah, that's a little bit about how I, how I got into the, the weed reporting. Sure, but now let's let's talk a little bit about how it's it's progressed in Mexico and Central America. Talk a little bit about what you've seen in the last. You've been down there for ten years, you said. Almost about a little over eight. Got it. So, I mean, how have you seen it progress? I mean, did Mexico finally have they finally passed a medical marijuana bill? Medical marijuana, yes. Um, it's where the big hiccup right now is, is with the federal legalization. Um, Mexican federal legalization? Yeah, which would create the largest federal marketplace in the world. Like if you think about a country right now, you know, Canada and Uruguay have, have a federal legalization, but, you know, their population is, you know, less than a fourth of Mexico. So we're talking about a market of 130 million that would be a recreational market, also a huge production hub, and would also, you know, undercut one of these businesses that are causing a lot of the uh, the drug violence here in, in Mexico. Obviously, other drugs have now taken precedence, especially since the legalization in the U.S. and Canada has, has made marijuana not necessarily the principal crop that a lot of these uh, drug cartels are working in. You know, now they focus more on heroin, cocaine, fentanyl, methamphetamine. Um, so there has been a movement here in Mexico, but it has stalled in a very odd way. 
The medicinal well, movement. I mean, it's stalled because what? I guess the cartels are pissed that they're losing out on, on a, a vertical. I, I wish it was that easy uh, to explain. You know, it's it seems to me there's a lack of political will. Essentially, what happened is a few years ago, um, the Supreme Court of Mexico ruled on a number of medical marijuana cases uh, to the point where it got to jurisprudence. And the Supreme Court dictated that marijuana had had to legalize marijuana and create a federal law. And that was, I believe, in 2018, uh, maybe 2017. I could be getting my dates mixed up here. That When that happened, they started creating this federal legalization bill, and they wrote it, and it basically just has been bouncing back and forth between the Senate and the Congress for about over two years. They kept missing their dates and asking for extensions until this past summer, the Supreme Court essentially just overruled and said, okay, marijuana is legal, but there's still not an actual law to outline what that means, who produces it, how the federal government plans to offer it. Uh, you know, so it's it's sort of in this weird, um, gray area. weird gray area right now. And someone needs to, to get their um, poop together. Sorry, I'm not sure what the language requirements on this show are. Do your thing. And... Uh, and it really pushed this law through because having this kind of ambiguous law is ridiculous, especially in a country that has such potential, not only to to sell within the recreational marketplace here, but also to create it and create a medical marijuana marketplace that they could export. Uh, you know, it's it just to me seems really short sighted to just have this hanging out there and no one really kicking the ball forward. Did the Supreme Court, did their Supreme Court decision make it available on the street? I mean, are people selling it and is it legal or are you being arrested for it? Are you being arrested you, for it? You won't be arrested if you're carrying like a small amount of it. Um, but I believe if you're selling it, it's still illegal because technically you're supposed to get a marijuana permit, but there's still no way to really get this permit, let alone like the permit to sell and produce it. So you can go get a, a permit to officially be able to have X amount of weed, but nobody is doing that. Nobody is going down and applying for this permit. And then you, they've decriminalized small amounts. So, you know, if I was to walk down the street with a joint in my pocket, you know, I couldn't get in trouble. Whether, um, you know, some, some cops might try to mess with me, that's another story. But um, like a tourist. I mean, I'm just, I'm just thinking right now. Some of our listeners are tuning in and going, "Wow, we'll go to Cabo because I can smoke." Yeah, yeah. Um, is that real? Is that right? I would generally say, if if you are a foreigner in Mexico, I'd still be cautious walking down the street with marijuana. Um, certainly, like I have, I have permanent residency. I'm a legal resident here to work, to live, and I would not really walk around with marijuana. Not to say necessarily something would happen. But I don't want to come on here and give the the green light to be with the green. You know what I mean? <laughs> gotcha. And do you think that that's going to eventually sort itself out? If you had asked me a year and a half ago, I would have said this was a done deal. This is happening. They had a law that was it seemed like it was a stamp away from being federally approved. Right now, at least the activists that I'm talking to, people that are really involved in the movement, you know, they're since the Supreme Court ruled this past summer. They've seen almost no political will to push forward what this actual legislation will work, will look like. So 
it's 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 really tough to say. I, I want to be hopeful, but I'm not seeing any signs to give me hope. Are you thinking that they might be getting pressured from the United States? I to doubt. It. No, okay. I doubt because you know the U.S. I think is moving towards legalization slowly. You know, state by state, whether they federally legalize, that's a different issue. But I mean, Canada didn't really receive any any serious blowback from the U.S. Um, well, I mean, it did and it didn't. I mean, the blowback, though we didn't we didn't sanction Canada, but you know, at the border and border crossings, and you know, the attitude of people coming from Canada who work in the cannabis industry, or people from the United States who work in the cannabis industry, crossing borders, mm-hmm. there's still quite a bit of angst involved in that right now. Sure. Yeah. The board. I mean, the border is always a different issue too. I guess I was thinking more within the country. Um, I mean, I have- let's say if, if Canadians who run cannabis businesses fly down to Miami to visit, and then they're seen walking into a, a dispensary in Florida, they could be brought in and asked questions about trying to do some sort of a nefarious thing about cannabis across state or country lines. So, you know, sure. I've heard I've heard of harassment cases. Yeah, certainly. I'm certainly, certainly there are. And do you think if Mexico goes ahead and, and uh, does something in the next year or so, could that same situation be? Then we're by both sides of the border, north and south. I mean, hypothetically, I just haven't seen anything to really make that make make me think that the U.S. is opposed to, to legalization in Mexico. Um, whether that would mean that Mexicans – if if Mexico did legalize, if Mexicans involved in the legal marijuana industry were to cross over into uh, Texas, for example, over the border and, and try to go to a, a CBD shop, who's to say what would happen with the local police and the investigations surrounding them? I wouldn't be surprised just because of how much kind of overlap there is um, between the marijuana industry and other drug industries here. Um I'm, I'm sure the U.S. would have eyes on people coming over here because that, that's one of my big questions and why I think the federal law really needs to exist in Mexico is how are you going to move this product completely out of the illegal marketplace? And how, how are you going to stop these, these criminal organizations that have their tentacles in so many, so many aspects of Mexican society? Because, because drug cartels isn't even the correct word. You know, a lot of these cartels are involved in avocado extortion. They're involved in in kidnapping rackets. You know, there's many ways they make money. And I think it would be very difficult to keep them out of the legal marijuana market if that was to happen in Mexico. So then do I think Mexican nationals involved in the legal marijuana market going to the U.S. would probably have eyes on them? I would say they probably would. Gotcha. So what got you interested in looking into what's going on in Paraguay? Um. I'm one of those people that uh, I'm always interested in reporting in countries I've never been to, learning about countries I've never been to. And I first heard about the Paraguayan weed several years ago. I was in Uruguay, Uruguay, neighboring country, which in Uruguay, it's federally legalized. Marijuana is federally legalized. It was the first country to federally legalize. I did a story about that legalization movement in 2017. But when I was there, I started hearing about this like brick weed, the Paraguayo, the Paraguayan weed. It's like 
yeah, you can buy the legal weed in the pharmacy. Then they have the cannabis clubs in Uruguay. But on the street, if you want the cheapest, cheapest, worst weed, it's the Paraguayo. And I started hearing about that from other friends in other countries in Argentina and Chile. It's the Paraguayo. If you talk to any of these neighboring countries of Paraguay, everybody there that has dabbled in uh, marijuana consumption has almost certainly at some point in their life tried the Paraguayo brick weed. So I had heard about this for a long time. So it was one of the stories I wanted to do. I've always had a keen interest in Paraguay. So I basically had it on my list. Some time opened up and I said, I think it's time to, to go down there and see what this is about firsthand. And Paraguay is a super interesting country that I've, I've wanted to visit. I've wanted to report from. And I wanted to figure out what the deal with this this weed was. And th- thankfully it happened. Gotcha. And so... You know, again, now let's let's talk a little bit about it because when you did hear about it, you know, and though we heard it, you heard it was, you know, probably some of the good, better cheap weed that you could get. You started to hear some other things about it that made it the worst weed you could get, right? Well, so that's that's one of the things that was so interesting to me about about this story is, you know, Paraguay. They say is either the third or fourth largest marijuana producing country on earth. And within the country, like when you see these flowers, they're actually very high quality. They're very high quality. They look good. But when you hear about the Paraguayan weed in other countries, it's known as the worst weed. So what is this process from taking, you know, a plant that's actually relatively high quality and just turning it into... um, I don't know if trash is the right word because it's effective, but it's not an enjoyable experience um, smoking it, which in my journalistic endeavor, I obviously had to had to try. So, <laughs> so the marijuana in Paraguay, I don't think all the marijuana is the worst weed in the world. The worst weed in the world is the marijuana produced in Paraguay that is taken, compressed, diluted and exported mostly by Brazilian gangs. And that's what you find in other countries. That's the brick weed. Do you, do you find a brick weed coming anywhere in the United States? I would doubt it. Anybody would use it. Nowadays. No. I mean, you hear, you hear about how the Mexicans used to package brick weed back in the day, you know, the whole idea of brick weed was go back to the golden triangle and the actual use of packing, packing keef in packing it ground up and packing it in, you know, anything from molasses to honey and other things was really the way that they kind of moved it around the golden triangle thousands Mm -hmm. of years ago. Yeah. And, you know, I think as the borders became more militarized with more security, that practice has picked up in other countries. Mexico used to do it. Now they don't really anymore, but Paraguay has continued that. And, you know, I think, you can still find brickweed in other countries. I know in Asia, like as you as you're saying with the Golden Triangle, at least the Asian Golden Triangle, you know, there's a lot of that brickweed out there. You'll find it in Thailand. Um, I remember when I was there about ten or eleven years ago, you would find the brickweed there. I but think, now, it, it, I think in, in, in Thailand they would they would literally pack it in their own version of a distillate, kind of an oil, hemp oil. And use that to see if they could keep the pest out, right? 
there's there's never a shortage of creative ways to right. <laughs> to move marijuana around. That's that's for sure. Right. So now you know what's the whole scope of the cannabis production in Paraguay? So what's going on? Massive. It's everywhere, um, especially when you get into the countryside. You know, this is something that that the campesinos, the farmers, have been doing for generations, um, and it it happens all throughout the country, but it's not legal for them to produce it. And I but think they do have a law that allows for the production of cannabis. Yes, you, but it has to be produced by the state, and they're not including the campesinos, nor is the state actually really producing marijuana at this point. They. I thought one of the most interesting things was when I was in Paraguay speaking with um, one of the, the principal marijuana activists there, he said something really interesting. And the, the quotes, the exact quotes in the article, I don't have it in front of me, but he said to me um, that we're not militants of the legalization. We're militants of them following the laws we actually have. So there is a law that says that Paraguay should pr- be producing marijuana for the medicinal marijuana industry. And they have these, they've given the permits to do that to certain producers and laboratories, but it's just not happening. And they're not including, you know, the tens of thousands of campesinos that have been doing this for generations that already have massive fields of marijuana, cannabis in the countryside. They're not including them in this production. And when you're looking at a country like Paraguay, which is a quite a poor country, even by South American standards, you're, you're looking at this production, um, this production base that already exists, that needs the help, that needs to be brought into the legal marketplace, and they're, they're not including them. You know, so, so there's the rub. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you want to know how to become a social media influencer, how to grow an online business, how to make money from your laptop and build a profitable online company? Well, I'm going to show you how in my podcast, Living the Red Life. I built a million-dollar company at the age of 25, a $10 million company at the age of 30, and now I'm the A-list celebrity marketer that speaks around the world on how to transform businesses and make them profitable using Facebook ads, marketing, social media. My name is Rudy Moore, and I'm super pumped to bring you my podcast, Living the Red Life. I know this is going to become your new favorite podcast, and I'm going to show you how to grow a profitable online company step-by-step every single week. Gotcha. And so now you were able to uh, to visit a farm. What was that like for you? I mean, were there security precautions that you had to take to protect yourself and the farmers that were working there? No. Well, I mean, the usual security precautions that, that one would take just so that we don't give away their location. Um, you mm. know, I'm very, very um, always concerned about remaining anonymous, people who allow me access to, to their world. Um, but these campesinos, they're the, they're the lowest rung of the ladder. You know, they, their farms are not, you know, prolled with or prowling with security guards. I doubt they even have weapons. We're talking a, a rural family, 12 people living in a, you know, a couple room shack in the middle of nowhere. And then you just go out the back, walk 30 feet, and there's um, hectares of marijuana fields. So 
you have to think about where they are in this ladder of the production cycle. When they're the, when I say they're the lowest rung, they are selling a kilo of this cannabis for $6 US. Yeah, it's, it was wild to me. I mean, that was one of the lowest prices I've heard anywhere in the world. So essentially they'll work with some sort of middleman um, for usually these Brazilian cartels that kind of run the marijuana industry uh, in Paraguay and in a lot of the surrounding countries, and they'll sell it directly to them. So their, their main um, danger isn't so much the criminal group, um, at least not from what I saw. I, I am certain that there have been instances of farmers probably being killed, forced off their land. I heard some stories that I wasn't able to include in the article about the dangers from that side. So I don't want to say that doesn't exist. But from the, the farmers that I was talking to, their main worry was actually that the police won't come and just cut down all their fields. And they were telling me that, you know, they have to pay um, X amount of money per hectare per crop to the police so that they don't come and cut down their, uh, their fields. So this is just a racket that exists and a complicity that exists with certain levels of the anti-narcotics forces there. So there's, that's more of the, the risk that they're taking. There's, they're making next to no money producing this. And then a, a large part of it also goes towards paying these sort of protection fees to the police. And, you know, I mean, I would think that after, you know, having the reputation of producing such poor quality in the, in the storage and shipping portion of it, that they would have would pay attention to that and say, well, let's see if we can use up our game. Why don't you talk a little bit about the process to make brick weed and, and why it is so low quality? Sure. So the I spoke to a lot of people about why the the bricked weed, the Paraguayan weed especially, is is such low quality. And to me, it seemed like it was a mixture of a number of factors. So just to start at the very, very beginning, one thing to know about Paraguay is it has a large agrochemical industry. You know, their main exports are soy, are... Um, our, our corn, things like that. And right now there is almost no legislation on these agrochemical giants operating in the country. So there's just a level of toxins that are spread throughout the water supply, throughout the fields, everywhere. So that's so pesticides, you name it, stuff that would be banned in other countries. Exactly. So that's just so people just so people understand, Paraguay is a country that's located basically right dead in the center of South America, you know, mm -hmm. bordering with Bolivia, Argentina, where's the border? Bolivia, Israel, Uruguay. Uruguay. It's, it's, the, it's one of only two landlocked nations in South America. So that's the first thing is the spread of these agrochemicals. That's just something, you know, there's issues with communities being contaminated, their water supply. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of environmental issues just surrounding that on its own, not even connected to marijuana. But some of that certainly is getting into the marijuana. The second uh, thing is that a lot of these farmers use their own small scale pesticides on their crops. At the fields that I went to, they use a little spray that they put on their marijuana crops. So you're getting toxins additionally that way. Third, 
the production technique. When these, a lot of these farmers have been doing this for generations, but that doesn't mean that like it's a high quality process. You know, it's still very rudimentary, um, especially when they're, they're take, you know, they're leaving it out to dry in the sun that lowers the quality. Uh, they, they don't let it dry entirely and then they cover it little mold and things like that start to grow in it sometimes. So that, that's something that has to do with the, the rudimentary techniques. And later on, I'll get back to what they're trying to do to improve that. But that's another thing to keep in mind. So that's just the general marijuana supply. After that, it, once it's sold to these uh, usually Brazilian cartels, they two things happen. One, they press it into this brick weed. That creates two problems. When the marijuana is put into a brick weed and it's still wet, it festers on the inside, creating a mold on the inside that, you know, is very unhealthy. Secondly, they often leave the, the seeds inside of the marijuana when they compress it. When these seeds break apart, it unleashes this like urine smell to it. Like when you smell this, as I said in the article, it's sort of a mix of cow shit and urine. It really did not smell that good. So, and then the final thing that happens, and this is not all the time, but I was speaking to some uh, cannabis experts in other countries, in Chile, for example, and they say when they get the Paraguayan weed, they find chemicals additional chemicals that they believe are put onto the marijuana after. So whether that's to create the, uh, to improve the potency, to mask the smell when it crosses the border, it's unclear, but other countries are finding that the weed is then contaminated with toxins. I mean, it just, it sounds like the, to me, I mean, who the hell is smoking this stuff? They ship it to Brazil and Brazil jacks it up that way. Are they selling it to Brazilians or not selling it here in the United States? I've never seen any of it. Yeah, you, you find this on the on the streets of Brazil, on the streets of Paraguay, on the streets of Chile, on the streets of Argentina. Argentina. I mean, one of the really interesting things to me uh, is that, like, Paraguayans don't smoke this stuff. Like, they keep the plants before it's pressed in the country. Like, actually finding the brick weed in Paraguay was a bit of a task on its own that, that I had to, had to take some time to actually do. But your typical Paraguayans, they don't want to smoke this crap. You know, they they smoke the plants or it gets additionally contaminated. Sure, what they're smoking, the the flowers may have the toxins that are already in it because of the agrochemical industry. Sure. um, Because of of the farmers spraying that on there. But they're not getting this brick weed. And then if you go to another country like Chile, for example, like I was talking to some people in Chile asking them about the brick weed and they were saying that the brick weed kind of has this like romanticism to them in their mind because it reminds them almost of their, it's like the beginning of smoking weed. You know, it's like maybe they were a teenager or early twenties and they were, you know, trying marijuana for the first time, the easiest, cheapest weed to get it's the Paraguayo. Now that there may be more, um, a bit more connoisseurs, you know, they're not smoking the Paraguayo, but they remember it as like when we first started smoking weed, that's what we found. You know, you'd go down to the park, you'd find somebody who's selling Paraguayo in the street, pay a couple bucks, you get a big, big nugget of this brick. And 
and it gets you pretty high. So it had this kind of rom romanticized idea for them. So I think the people who are smoking this are one, younger, newer marijuana smokers, two, people who can't afford anything better. Because at the end of the day, it's the cheapest stuff you're going to find. Um, you say it gets you a little high, but does it get you sick? Well, have there been any deaths reported by consuming this mess? I've never heard about any deaths attributed to it, but I can tell you that it has a reputation for making you nauseous, giving you a headache after you smoke it. And as I told you, I'm a very serious journalist, so I had to partake. I had to try it to know what the effects were firsthand. And when I took this stuff, you have to imagine uh, it really is like a brick. Like you can't put your fingers into it. I was having trouble breaking this stuff off the brick. I, I kind of had to chisel at it a little bit, rolling the joint. I think I'm pretty good at rolling a joint. I had to use a, a card to cut it to actually roll the joint. Then when I smoked it, I didn't get a headache. That was what I was most worried about. But I certainly got nauseous almost immediately. And it was very harsh. The, the toke of it was very harsh. And each toke was harsher. Wow. I the first toke, I didn't think it was so bad. The second toke, okay, yeah, I feel it. The third toke, coughing a little bit. By the end, like I didn't finish the joint. I smoked about a third of it, and I was good. I was feeling a little nauseous. I put it out, drank some water, but it hit. I mean, I definitely felt it. Uh, I was certainly stoned for a few hours. Um, after Did you feel like you were stoned like you would normally be from cannabis, or you were stoned because you had a little chemical added to it? It was a little bit uneven, the high. It definitely felt like a cannabis high. Like It didn't feel different. But it felt a little all over the place, you know, and maybe that's because I've spent the past 10 years or so that when I have smoked marijuana, you know, I can choose the kind I want to take most of the time. You know, you can choose if you want what kind of sensations you want. This was sort of all over the place. Like I found I was very anxious, really kind of in my head, um, kind of had weird energy that I wasn't expecting and I had trouble sleeping afterwards. And the nauseousness eventually went away, but it was not, it wasn't slow to go away. I said, it, it, I'd say it took about 45 minutes or so to feel kind of normal again, at least within my system. It was something that you didn't want to smoke again. Definitely not. Um, definitely not. There was no part of me afterwards that thought about rolling up another one. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Well, I mean, you know, with Paraguay passing a law that that claims to have been able to legalize or and the government was going to produce it, um, how has that affected the production of this, you know, gray market weed? So the the legalization too, just to specify, it's it's legalization to produce it when it goes towards um medical oils. So it's heading towards this process of medical cannabis oils. In terms of producing cannabis for the recreational market, there is no legalization on that. There is no law in Paraguay that even mentions recreational marijuana. And Paraguay in itself is a very conservative society. It has a very conservative government that's been in power for a long time. And there's not really a movement for the recreational industry. There's a movement on the medicinal side. 
But one of the people who I spoke to was the founder of uh, Mama Cultiva, which is a, a group of generally mothers, but parents who are, are working towards uh, medical marijuana uh, or, or oils related to their children, usually with um, epilepsy or different issues with pain, um, you know, but in the medical sphere. She founded the Paraguayan uh, side of this. But with when they give these production licenses to state-run facilities and they're not producing anything, she still needs, she and her, her colleagues still need to find marijuana for their own, uh, their own uh, oils that they're making for their, their children. And the issue is, even with all this large-scale production in the countryside, they can't buy from them. One, because it's illegal, but two, because of the toxins. Exactly. They can't use this this weed because it's not a it's not a good enough quality to make medi medicinal marijuana. So the basically the medicinal sphere right now is is primarily around the capital of Asuncion, and it's these mothers and people related to them, um, and not necessarily by blood, but you know in their community who are creating indoor grow operations, high quality marijuana for uh, medicinal purposes, but that in itself is still illegal. So these mothers who fought for the law, who were the principal people that, that brought this and, and got it approved by the government, are still outside of this, the legal marketplace. Um, so it's really, it's, you can put a law in place, but if you don't act on it, what's, what is the law worth anything? So, I mean, is there anybody growing legal version of this cannabis anywhere? It's hard to say. I mean, the, the activists that I were talking to were saying that the, um, these production centers from the government still aren't producing any marijuana four years later. I was not given access to any of these to go in and confirm that. But the government didn't tell me that they were actually producing anything. So as far as I'm seeing, no. Wow. Well, I mean, and, and I, but I don't quite quite understand if everybody knows that the quality that's being produced is so bad. Even even the non brick that's not exported, but what's left over, I don't understand who's consuming this crap. Yeah, I mean, even the the stuff that that before it's pressed, like it has a little bit of toxins in it, but it's still pretty good wheat. Like I, I would put it on par with, you know, probably what you were buying in, in the U.S. or or Canada in the in the '90s, you know, before pesticides really started being being banned. You know, it was it was still pretty good stuff. So your everyday cannabis smoker, I think, is smoking that in Paraguay, um, and also, you know, in the cities. Like I think in much of the world, there's always going to be a clandestine movement of high quality weed growers with their indoor grow ups. You know, there's, there's people that are selling very high quality marijuana without these toxins within, within Paraguay as well. So I'd say your typical Paraguayans are smoking the pre adulterated pre brick weed. And that's, that's probably, and, and they also move some of that outside 
it's not just the brickweed that's getting into Brazil, it's getting into Chile, it's getting into Argentina, because those are not large production countries in themselves. Paraguay is really kind of fulfilling this whole area. Well, and what's being done to see if they can improve the quality of the cannabis? Anybody, anybody working at doing that? Yeah, I, I really met some interesting activists when I was there. Um, a year ago, a little over a year ago today, it was on May 1st, International Workers' Day, uh, there was a collective of cannabis activists who aligned themselves with a group of indigenous activists in a region called Aguarito. And they created a, uh, an outdoor cannabis grow operation on the side of the highway in public view, essentially occupying this space um, to tell the government, um, you need to move forward, you need to, to do this. But also what they're doing is they've been connecting with campesinos um, all around the region in about three different departments. Departments are what they call states in Paraguay and are, and are creating similar um, public grow operations there and are teaching the local campesinos how to make organic marijuana. So how to stop using these pesticides on their own plants. You know, the toxins that are just in the air, that's always going to be an issue until Paraguay cleans up their agrochemical industry. But they've aligned themselves now with, you know, well over a thousand farmers who have their own plantations that and teaching them how to make oils, how to stop using pesticides, how to improve their grow operations. And for most of these campesinos, they didn't know anything about this. Like the ones that I, I was with, they only learned about this, um, this movement 15 days before I visited, even though it had been around for a year. So there's, there's been a movement um, of people and it's growing quickly really trying to connect with the campesinos and show them how they can improve their quality and what their options are after they produce. Because right now their only option is basically to sell it. And who are they selling it to? The middle, the middle people with these Brazilian cartels and they're selling it for next to nothing. What this cooperative, this organic cooperative is doing is showing these, these campesinos how they can make their own oil, how they can make hash, how they can do all sorts of different things with a product that they're familiar with. So it's, it's, it's happening. It's happening fast. And hopefully that will improve the quality. I mean, what, so what would you say the future looks like for cannabis in Paraguay? You know, I would say it depends on the government. It really depends on the government. They have a huge opportunity to revolutionize the country if they do this correctly. And so far they're not at least from what I've seen. But I think there is a movement of people who realize the steps that need to be taken and are trying to figure out how to pressure the government to do that. I think the government does believe that they need to capitalize on cannabis production. One thing we haven't spoken about, and I wasn't able to focus on it much in my article, is the way that Paraguay is trying to move into the, the hemp space. That, again, is not going so well with the way that they're trying to do it, but they're trying to bring campesinos who are already creating cannabis or creating other crops to produce hemp. 
and they've been giving them the seeds they need and trying to bring them into this. Some of the campesinos that I were talking to said the process has gone horribly. They created the hemp and they couldn't sell it back to the government and they basically abandoned the process. And is the hemp coming in at like 0.3% THC or is it? I don't know the exact number, but it's for industrial use. It's not for any kind of recreational or medicinal use. It's for industrial use. And it shows that the government is trying to, to, to figure out how to deal with marijuana cannabis production on two sides, the medicinal industry and the uh, industrial hemp industry. But it just seems like they're doing it really poorly. But all of this has happened in the last five years. So what will the future look like? It's hard to say. I think it really amounts to whether the government will take the steps they need to take, follow through on the laws they have, and create new laws. Because I think there's a lot of uh, movement in the region outside of Paraguay, in Brazil, in Argentina, in Chile, for a recreational market. Paraguay could really feed this recreational market. It could feed the medicinal market. It could feed the industrial market all at once. And the government doesn't seem to be moving into that third sphere at all. And I think if they really want to improve the quality of life for your average campesino, there are three ways to do that. Industrial, medicinal, and and, uh, through recreation. So they just need to take the steps. They have a huge potential in that country. If you're the third or fourth largest producing marijuana country in the world, you're the by far the largest in South America. The potential is immense. And I think the government needs to, to move forward on that. Uh, you know, I, you probably know this, but I mean, what what is the tourism rate of Americans going to Paraguay? Not that it's not that high in terms of Americans. Um, certainly, there are American tourists, um, but it actually has a lot of European tourists. Strangely enough, Paraguay is after Argentina and Brazil the third largest expat group in the country, you know, besides these two neighboring countries where you're obviously going to have a lot of spillover, the third largest are Germans, followed by a number of European countries. There's a huge movement of Europeans that are moving there, that are traveling there. Um, and it's it's pretty wild. Like I went to some places where I'd go to a restaurant and, you know, I speak fluent Spanish, um, but I'm very used to in Mexico or in even other countries like like Chile or, or Costa Rica, you know, they might bring me a menu in English. In Paraguay, they bring me a menu in German, which I thought was really, really kind of odd. Um, so there's there's definitely a an expat scene, but it's more European than American. Well, I mean, our Let's Be Blunt is seen all over the world and we've, we've got guests on it from all over the world. So I just wanted to, I only brought that up just to see if um, we want to, shout out a little warning to those going down there that maybe, you know, if you decide that you want to try to partake in some Paraguay weed, you need to make sure you know where it's coming from. You know what, you know what I would say? I would say if, if you go to Paraguay, the flowers will be all right. If you smoke it there, if you go to Brazil or you go to Argentina or you go to Chile, don't buy anything called Paraguayo. Because that was one thing that like the Paraguayans really, especially, you know, the ones who are more involved in the, the recreational movement, 
they're like, we don't even smoke that crappy weed. That stuff's hard to find here. You know, if, but if you go to Brazil and someone's saying, oh, this is Paraguayo and they're trying to give you brick weed, stay away from that. Stay away from that. Well, my friend, thank you so much. When will this report air on Vice? It's already out. Came out already. on 420. Huh? Say that again? Came out on 420. Oh, perfect. Perfect. And it's probably repeating itself right now so we get a chance to see it. People want to watch it. If they wanted to, to get more information, do you have a website or anything that people can go to? Yeah. I mean, obviously, Vice, Vice News. Um, and you can check my personal website, NathanielJanowitz.com. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Nathaniel, for being a part of the show today, man. Really, really interesting stuff. I think, you know, people need to understand that, you know, as quickly as America seems to have moved forward, people don't know that well over 40 countries around the world have now legalized in some way, shape, or form, or at least brought themselves, taken themselves out of the international treaty that banned hemp. So, um, you know, this cannabis available around the world. I think uh, this year, Germany may go ahead and, and pass uh, its own adult use law. Have you heard that? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think the movement, the movement's happening everywhere. Um, I, I personally am of the, the mode of thinking that in, within the next 10 or 15 years, a lot of, a lot of the world is going to be federally legalized. I think there's a movement happening. It's happening you know, I wouldn't even say it's happening slowly. If you look where we were 15 years ago when I first moved to Colorado and they just passed medical marijuana card licenses compared to where we are now, I'd be, you know, I think in 10, 15 years, we're going to make leaps and bounds all across the world. I, 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 your, your lips to God's ears. I don't know what the recent, you know, uh, uh, conservative rollback on personal rights by, you know, one group in this country, I'm, a, I'm, I'm afraid that, you know, people who ignore what just happened this week when it comes to, you know, the leaked document about possibility of rolling back Roe versus Wade, that rolls back personal liberties. And, you know, um, I, I wouldn't put it past this group to attempt to roll back all the successes that have already happened with cannabis nationwide. And they could do so just with the stroke of a pen. I mean, because you got to remember, most people in this country don't remember that the U.S. government owns the patent on CBD in the United States. The second that they want to say, oh, by the way, you're infringing on my patent and anybody who's doing so, you're going to jail. They can shut down every dispensary in America. Mm -hmm. Just like that stroke of the pen. We're going to enforce our patent and nothing you can say about it. So, you know, we have to stay vigilant, especially those that are in the movement. But. Keep an eye on the prize of what's going on around the world. I've been talking to, to companies out of Lesotho, South Africa, out of uh, uh, Colombia, uh, groups out of Argentina, all of whom are trying to get into this, the cannabis movement. So I think you're, you may be right, though. I think the rest of the world is going to come to an understanding before we do. Could happen that way. It could happen that way. Hopefully not. Um but maybe by then Mexico will be federal legalized and uh, people can just hop hop over the border. <laughs> there you go, for sure. Like they can right now in Canada and go visit because, you know, we, we do recognize that I think it's like 30% of the people who are traveling right now have been actually saying that cannabis tourism is part of the reason for their travel. Yeah, and I think I think other countries are starting to realize that too. I think that's one of the reasons why there is a movement in so many other countries around the world because – it's, it's, you know, it's really interesting in Canada right now. Some of the places you can go 
and the experiences you can have that include marijuana. And even in Colorado and things like that. And I think Mexico has a great opportunity to really move towards cannabis tourism. Uruguay already has it happening. Paraguay. I mean, it's going to be happening more and more around the world. It's, it's a great, it's just a great way to make money for other countries. Like, why would you not do it? Absolutely. And, you know, we're just at the tip of the iceberg with using a plant and the multiple ways that it can be used. So, again, I got to say thank you, sir, for being on the show. Anytime you have something that you want to drop, we'd love to have you back. Um, you have an open invitation to come on back and let's be blunt. I also do another one that's called Free Thinking. So either one of those that you want to be on, let me know, and we will definitely have you back, Nathaniel. Sounds good. Absolutely, sir. Well, thank you so much for being a part of Let's Be Blunt today. And thank you for tuning in to Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments. Are you dealing with best life burnout, constantly striving for more, and quite frankly, over it? Maybe you just want more joy, peace, and laughter in your life now. Well, then let's go. Welcome to your new favorite podcast, Hot Happy Mess, hosted by me, your girl, Zuri Hall. We are celebrating our magic in the middle of life's messes. Don't miss new episodes every Wednesday. Listen to the Hot Happy Mess podcast on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.